afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Grox. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be talking about public access, boxes, and sex hormones. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. David Grinspoon, who will discuss astrobiology. Plus, we'll find out what's the difference between the melting point and the freezing point. So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week coming right up here on Berkeley Grocks. Welcome back to Perfect Box. This is Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Not too bad. Okay, well, it's always good to hear that you're doing very well. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, Charles. Uh, you know, I'm always concerned about your health because if you were to drop dead, we'd have no show. Yeah, <laughs> or pick you up from your home to take you to the studio in the morning. <laughs> I have unremitting you know, commitments to this station. You know, I'm just honored that I can make such a big contribution to the station. <laughs> Without us, would the station even exist? It's kind of built around the Berkeley Grok show, really. <laughs> And there's some music in the music. Yeah, like about a week's worth of music in between rock shows, I think, is how people think about it. <laughs> Interesting. So, uh, what's new in science? Well, it turns out that dogs are friendly. Wow. <laughs> you, they won't bite you off and piss on you? Well, not, not any dogs that you'd want to have, anyway. So, uh, for quite some time, researchers have been wondering why dogs were both friendly and very smart and intelligent. Mm-hmm. And the question was whether or not the genetic traits necessary for smartness and friendliness go hand-in-hand hand or separate. Mm-hmm. This, of course, was a question because it had been wondering for quite some time how did dogs come to become very strong companions of humans? Were they selected out and bred for their friendliness and companionability, or were they selected for their intelligence? And it turns out that the two are linked. Oh, really? Yes, that you can't separate one without the other. Wow, I love those genes. <laughs> so, to test this theory, a team led by Brian Hare, a biological anthropologist at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany, he uh, selectively bred foxes for 45 years and picking foxes that tended not to have a tendency to bite and who were comfortable around humans. Right. And then he compared and looked at their intelligence traits mm-hmm. and saw that he selected also, it turns out, for very intelligent behaviors. Oh, so the more they bite, the more intelligent they are. The, the less they bite, apparently, the more intelligent they are. Ah, so now they restrain themselves somehow. Yeah, I guess uh, pr- presumably they're arguing that the traits that allow foxes to interpret what humans are thinking and how they are acting by interpreting our cues also are involved in higher cognitive type of behaviors. Great, and if anyone wants to know how to make their dogs <laughs> a little more intelligent, perhaps? Or their foxes, or I don't know, what other animals? <laughs> Anteaters? <laughs> The aardvark is an underappreciated animal. More people should have the aardvark as a pet. But until such time, they can uh, look in the recent edition of Current Biology to learn about foxes. Alright, so you know what's happening with the Hubble? Isn't it having problems with its lenses? Unfortunately so, and also its gyroscope. Some incontinence as well. (laughs) Probably. You don't know what those aliens are doing to it. Well, you know, anything that ages, you know. Yeah, indeed it is aging. And most likely it's going to be out of commission by 2007 if we don't do anything about it. Right, that's sort of the big thing. And uh, a lot of astronomers, haven't they been pushing for a mission to go up there and repair a lot of the elements in the Hubble? Right. Unfortunately, the new NASA budget does not include additional money for repairing it. It only gives it $93 million to upkeep it for the year. Mm. And actually for that 93 million, 75 of it's intended to develop a robotic mission to deorbit the 
telescope, oh, wow. so make it crash safely into the ocean. But there have been proposals to extend its life through using a robotic mission. The current NASA chief, Sean O'Keefe, said safety concerns ruled out having astronauts fixing it. But then, ranking Democrats in the Congressional Science Committee says that his analysis is very selective, since O'Keefe claims that a shallow mission to Hubble was no more dangerous than one to the space station. Mm-hmm. So it's very controversial, and right now there's a lot of congressional debate as to whether Hubble should be extended or not. You know, from my point of view, it just seems like it's a, a lot cheaper just to extend the uh, lifetime of the Hubble than actually build a new telescope and launch it into space, which might not even right, work, right? Right, But the problem is with this climate of budget deficits and right. budget cuts, it's hard to justify some of these things to the rest of the country at times. Well, clearly uh, blowing things up is taking priority at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, this is surprising. I mean, since the Hubble is probably the uh, source of some of the most spectacular images of right, space. Right, one of the most successful project of NASA. <laughs> it hasn't crashed into planets or anything. so uh-huh. Or killed anyone. Yet. We don't know what they're planning. All right, well, this is fascinating stuff, so people want to know more about. You can go to the recent edition of NewScientist.com. Okay, Frank, do you always like getting what you pay for? I always get what I pay for. Wow, what do you pay for? Let's see, you know, the best things in life are free. Sometimes they might even pay you for that. Oh, yeah. Even better. Well, it turns out, though, when it comes to scientific research, you're not always getting what you pay for. In fact, you might not even have access to it. Is it because it's so proprietary or something? At least in the realms of publishing of scientific results, Mm -hmm. just general access to scientific publications is, in fact, very limited. Oh. Even when the research is funded by public money, in particular in biology anyway, the NIH grants. Hmm. But in general, let's say in an academic institution like Berkeley, we have access to almost all the journals in the world, right? That's true indeed, but for instance, for patients who are interested in the latest research about their particular ailments, they may not have access to particular things, even though the research is funded by taxpayer money, which comes from these grants, right? Right. So there's been a big push recently to create open access journals, public domain, Mm -hmm. for research that's funded by public money. I see. And it's a big problem right now, trying to determine policies for this type of thing, Mm -hmm. and obviously the publishers aren't interested in this because it's going to cut into their bottom line. So right now, a policy has emerged from Congress, which has asked NIH to ask its grantees to post their research online as early as a year now after it's been published in a journal. Mm -hmm. But this, of course, has created some controversy since some journals make the research free after that time anyway, so it's kind of a push. So nothing really has moved in some respects. Everything should be free, man. (laughs) But if you've already paid for it, you should be able to get it as well. Yes. And this was uh, published in a recent edition of Science Now. So how's your sex hormone level? Apparently operating on high levels. Unfortunately, I have nowhere to vent it. Whoa, so you have a pretty good life then, huh? Is it? <laughs> well, it turns out for people who, who are downtrodden that have the lower sex hormones. Well, I always feel kind of upbeat. That's, that's cool. It's cool. also part of the amphetamines that I'm taking, but that's <laughs> another issue. <laughs> so it turns out in a study done with monkeys that people who have higher levels of sex hormones are actually on the upper crust. Of happiness? Of the uh, social hierarchy. Well, that doesn't seem to correlate with my existence. <laughs> well, you maybe the exception that proves the rule. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it turns out that people who have low socioeconomic status usually have worse health, uh, more coronary heart disease, depression, premature death than those higher on the social scale. And this was done with a survey of UK civil servants, especially people doing the menial jobs have these conditions. And so what they did was they did a similar study with downtrodden monkeys and they showed that lower ranking females are more likely to become depressed. They slouch more, they stare at the floor, they lose interest in their environment and they die prematurely. So what does this have to do with the hormone levels? So it turns out that people who are downtrodden 
probably will have lower hormone levels and as a result they'll have various health problems caused by that mm. so being social rank and being depressed are simply not things in your mind they actually manifest itself in physical conditions sure so I, I imagine that it's probably a self-enforcing condition as you become more and more depressed and downtrodden the hormones start increasing as well which force you into even more of a depressive state right wow you must be the dude then huh hey the dude abides <laughs> and that rug really tied the room together too <laughs> yeah so uh, this is an excellent article in the recent edition of New Scientist and that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, Dr. David Grinspoon will join us to discuss astrobiology, so stay tuned. to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, much has been made recently of the emerging field of astrobiology, the attempt to find life on other planets. But this is a quest that has a rich and full history and perhaps only recently gained scientific legitimacy in academic departments. With the newest explorations now occurring on Titan and Mars, the prospects for astrobiology are perhaps brighter than ever. And joining us today on Berkeley Grox to discuss the recent developments in astrobiology is Dr. David Grinspoon. Dr. Grinspoon is an internationally known planetary scientist funded by NASA to study the evolution of Earth-like planets elsewhere in the universe. He is currently principal scientist in the Department of Space Studies at the Southwest Research Institute and adjunct professor of astrophysical and planetary science at the University of Colorado. He is the author of several technical papers and general articles on the subject, and his research recent book, Lonely Planets, The Natural Philosophy of Alien Life, won the 2004 Penn Center Literary Award. Dr. Grinspoon, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grocks. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, well, it's certainly a pleasure to have you on the program, and you've written a very fascinating book, Lonely Planets, talking about the field of astrobiology. What another guest on our program, David Darling, called the Maverick Field of Astrobiology, mm-hmm. in fact. But as you mentioned in the book, it's in fact an age-old quest, so I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit about astrobiology research, what it is, what you're trying to achieve, and maybe a little bit of the history of it. Yeah, well, when I hear people describe astrobiology as a new field, I kind of chuckle a little bit because it's really a new name for an old quest. And sometimes uh, astrobiologists like to present it as a virgin birth, you know, (laughs) like scientists never thought before about trying to search for extraterrestrial life. What's new about it is, well, first of all, it's been officially sanctioned. It used to be called exobiology, and it used to be sort of a fringe field that a lot of scientists were interested in, but it it wasn't good for your career to admit that, and it was something you did on the side. Mm. But in recent years, it's in fact become a respectable and well-funded enterprise. And there's a lot of things that are different and cool about astrobiology as a science. And one of them is that it's very multidisciplinary. It's not just astronomers and biologists, as the name obviously implies, but there are a lot of Earth scientists getting in on the game. And basically, we have to apply whatever tools we can towards this very hard question of addressing life elsewhere, when, of course, we only have the example of life on Earth to extrapolate from. And, you know, in science, reaching grand conclusions when you have a sample size of one, 
one is not necessarily considered good science. So we're really kind of pushing the edge of what we can do with science here and in a way taking some risks. But it's worth it, of course, because the payoff would be so huge if we actually could discover extraterrestrial life. Indeed, indeed. Well, one of the aspects that you mentioned in the books is that scientists are also looking to the extreme environments on Earth just to see the range of environments that life could possibly exist in. Yeah, again, you know, we don't have very many clues to help us with this task because we don't have any extraterrestrials to study. (laughs) And so this has actually even been accused of being a scientist without a subject. Mm. But the clues that we do have are various qualities of life on Earth that we think hint at the possibilities for extraterrestrial life. And then, of course, everything we're learning about environments out there on other planets. And you mentioned the extremophiles. One of the hopeful trends in recent years in terms of discoveries that we've made on Earth that encourage us to believe that there could be life on other planets is that we are finding that life on Earth is much more tolerant of a wide range of extreme conditions than we ever believed. And there's this whole cottage industry of finding these extremophile organisms, which means lovers of extremes, mm-hmm. organisms that live in places that we used to think were too cold or too hot or too acidic or too basic or too salty or too high pressure to support life. All of these boundaries have been burst by the finding of mostly microbial life that indeed thrives in these environments that we used to think uh, nothing could live in. And that suggests to us that the range of environments where life could live on other planets is wider than we used to think. You also mentioned in the book that these things are based on the life that evolved on Earth, carbon-based, but of course, uh, and you're not necessarily constricted to that sort of chemistry. Yeah, there's a sense in which scientists are very conservative when they think about life elsewhere. We almost have to be to mm-hmm. remain within the bounds of science because uh, we have to somehow extrapolate from what we know. So we tend to, in a way, project ourselves out there. We imagine that life is going to want liquid water and life will be carbon-based. And certainly we know that that is a good basis for life because it's worked once on this planet. We have that kind of life to study. And so one good way to approach the search for extraterrestrial life is to look for liquid water reservoirs on other planets and look for the kinds of places where carbon chemistry could thrive. But there's another way of thinking about it, which is to try to break it down to what are really the basic requirements of life and go beyond that assumption that other life has to be just like ours in a chemical sense. And then we get into qualities of environments that involve more like thermodynamic characteristics, where at least I think we can safely say that life will need an energy flow of some kind to thrive on and power its metabolism and reproduce itself. And maybe there is some other kind of chemistry that has nothing to do with carbon that does as good or a better job out there that we uh, are just not smart enough to imagine yet. And how's the search for extrasolar worlds going? There have been many talks of uh, the planets found around other suns, but those seem to be on the order of gas giants. Well, the search for planets around other stars is going wonderfully. I mean, to put it in perspective, if you and I had had this conversation a decade ago, (laughs) I would have said, well, you know, all we know for sure are the nine planets in our solar system, and we have every reason to believe that there are planets out there around other stars. And upon this sort of faith that those planets are out there, we base our belief that the universe is probably of life because there are probably a lot of planets. Well, that has gone from being an article of kind of scientific faith to an observed fact. Now we know that the universe is full of planets. And you mentioned that most of the ones we found are the gas giants, not Earth-like small little rocky worlds, but giant gas balls like Jupiter or larger. But of course, that's mostly the result of what we call observational selection. The ones you find first are the ones that are easiest to see. And the gas giants, for a number of reasons, are easier to detect. And when our equipment gets better, we fully expect to start finding the Earth's sized worlds that might be more of a home to at least our kind of life. Uh, there's sort of an undercurring theme that goes throughout your book, conflict between uh, theories of the rare Earth and uh, the plurality of worlds. Uh, it's interesting, though, that the findings of extrasolar planets seem to help bolster the argument of the plurality of worlds. 
Yeah, I, I think it, it does very much so. The rare earth argument that you alluded to is an argument that basically looks at all of the separate qualities of earth that are unique and that seem to be related to earth's capacities to support life. So you have the earth's distance from the sun, which allows us to be in the right temperature range to have liquid water. You have the existence of plate tectonics on earth, the internal driving geological engine, which remakes the landscapes of earth and keeps the surface full of nutrients. You have the existence of earth's moon, which is an unusual object in that it's a very large moon compared to the size of the primary planet, mm. and it helps to stabilize the climate by keeping the Earth from wobbling, and, and the list goes on, and then the rare earthers claim that this concatenation of all these seemingly rare qualities makes Earth unique in the universe, and in fact makes at least complex life unlikely to mm. exist elsewhere. I reject that argument completely. I think that it's narrow-minded and that it gives us and our planet too much credit. It goes back to my mind to the line from Voltaire hair in the 17th century, his character who said, this is the best of all possible worlds. And I think that it's just a lack of imagination that allows us to look at the qualities of our planet and say, nowhere else in the universe could there be a planet so perfect for life. It's perfect for our kind of life because we have evolved. We're the product of mm. billions of years of evolution that has cleverly exploited the idiosyncrasies of this planet. But other planets are going to have other idiosyncrasies and the life that has lived on them for billions of years and then comes to consciousness and starts thinking about astrobiology and writing books, they will conclude that only on their kind of planet, which is completely different from ours, can there be complex life. And they'll be just as wrong as the rare earthers are here on Earth. And the fact that we're discovering lots of other planets out there just encourages us to realize that there's a huge diversity of planetary environments throughout the universe and still don't know how many of them can support life. But the hints that we're getting, I think, from our exploration of Earth and of the solar system are telling us that probably there are a wide variety of environments and other planets that do support life. You mentioned in one of the later chapters of your book, the Drake Equation, figure out the possibility of life on other planets. But in particular, like intelligent life, which is like something that most people would be interested in uh, as far as finding life, was the finding of intelligent life. Yeah. Well, of course, that's a certain sense it's the main reason why we really care about this mm -hmm. question. I mean, it would be really, really neat to discover other microbes on another planet. It would help us to contextualize Earth life, understand how rare or how commonplace the events that led to life on our planet are in the universe, and uh, be a huge scientific breakthrough to find a microbe elsewhere. But what the public really cares about, and I think what a lot of the scientists ultimately dream about, is the possibility of discovering complex life that can actually communicate and that might have even encountered some of the problems we're encountering today that are trying to be a technological civilization and live wisely on a planet and not destroy ourselves with our own cleverness. You know, it would be wonderful to have a peer, in a sense, in the universe, somebody who's faced these same problems and come out on the other side. And in my view, I go into the logic for this in Lonely Planets in more detail than I can in this conversation, but I think that it's basically inevitable that the universe is full of very advanced and wise species who have made it through that the difficulty of being a primitive technological species like at the stage that we're in now, and that sooner or later, if we uh, stick around on the scene long enough, we are bound to meet them. Uh, so it's just a matter of waiting until we receive contact. Right? Well, waiting and then doing what we can to listen and perhaps at some point start to seriously try to send messages, certainly keeping our eyes open for unusual things in, in both in our own solar system mm. and uh, farther out in the universe that might be hard to explain without intelligent intervention is a marked course as we explore the universe. So has there been further like, technological advances in SETI project of trying to listen to these signals? Well, yeah, SETI marches onward at a furious pace. The reach of our radio searches is uh, growing exponentially, and in particular, there's a huge telescope array called the Allen Telescope Array, largely funded by the Microsoft Zillionaire <laughs> Allen name, um, which 
is going to come online very soon, I think next year, and it's uh, in Northern California, and it's a large array of telescopes dedicated just to the search for extraterrestrial radio signals, and it's going to increase the reach of our searches by a, a huge factor, many orders of magnitude. So if the signals are out there, but we just haven't searched with equipment that's quite powerful enough, then there's a chance that we may detect them in the next few years. And there, there are other kinds of techniques coming online, too. There's OSETI, or optical SETI, where people are not just looking for radio waves now, but looking for laser pulses, sort of like the, the interstellar analogy of uh, ships at sea flashing lights to one another with Morse code. Mm. So we are uh, constantly expanding the range and the power of our searches for extraterrestrial signals, and it's a very hard thing to predict success in, but it could take 100 years or it could happen tomorrow. <laughs> well, that would be news if it did. Yeah, I'd certainly be excited. Well, I think we all would. More recent news is all the uh, landings that have first occurred on Mars and more recently on Titan. What have we learned about the possibility of life from these studies? Oh, a lot. It's really been an amazing year in the solar system. Personally, I think it's been a pretty crappy year on Earth, but it's been a great year <laughs> elsewhere in the solar system. First of all, those plucky Mars rovers which were only supposed to last for 90 days, are still operating now more than a year after their landings. Wow. And they, they found many wonders. But the most astounding thing they found is that they have verified, really beyond any doubt now, that Mars is a planet that once had abundant surface water mm. uh, for long periods of time, found remnants of salty seas in the rocks that the rovers are exploring. And that means that Mars, at least in the past, was a habitat, a place where our kind of life could have thrived. So certainly Mars is a place that we need to go back to and at least look for fossils mm -hmm. and have every reason to believe that either we will find evidence of fossil life on Mars or we'll learn something that we're wrong about the conditions that life needs in the universe. And either way, it's a big advance. Mm -hmm. And then you mentioned Titan, and just a couple weeks ago, we had this incredible success with the Huygens probe, mm -hmm. which had been launched from Earth way back in 1997, traveling all that distance to Saturn's moon Titan, which is one of the strangest places in the solar system because it's an icy moon with a very thick atmosphere and clouds and hazes. And the Huygens probe, three weeks ago now, successfully plunged through those clouds, landed on the surface, taking pictures all the way down. And what we've learned is that Titan is a really kind of eerily Earth-like place. There are rivers and there's a shoreline. And even though it's minus 300 degrees there, there are a lot of processes that are very analogous to Earth. I mean, the, the rivers are carved by liquid methane, not by water. Mm -hmm. And the, the shoreline and the rocks are made out of solid ice rather than rock. But we've seen that nature loves to repeat its complex forms in different locations using different materials, but in very familiar-looking ways. Mm. So then the question, of course, is, well, is life another one of those complex processes that nature likes to repeat in different places? And we don't know, but everything we've learned so far, I think, is very encouraging about the possibility of some kind of exotic life that might exist on Titan. Again, it'll be fascinating to find out what comes out of all these projects. Um, yeah, and by the way, uh, if people listening are interested in seeing the pictures, because there are amazing pictures now, just mind-blowing, of Titan from this Huygens probe, and also so the Mars rovers continue to release incredible pictures, and they're, they're not in the news anymore because there's mm. not a, a new sound bite. but the pictures are, are really worth looking at. And one way you can find these, I've created a web portal that has links to all of the best Mars and Titan images and other space images, too, and it's just called LonelyPlanets.net, www.LonelyPlanets.net. And if you click on links, then you'll see a link for the latest Mars images and the latest Titan images and so forth. And, and it's really worth taking a look because th these are just mind-blowing pictures, and a lot of them have not been published other than on the web. Well, I'd definitely go and check those things out. I understand also if people want to hear more about this issue as well, you're going to be in the Bay Area giving some talks on the February 19th and the 21st. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to be in town and I invite people to come down and hear what I have to say and, and get into some discussion about extraterrestrial life and space exploration. There are two talks actually in Oakland on the 19th, February 19th, Saturday night. I will be at the Chabot Space
Space and Science Center, I believe at 7 p.m., and that talk is going to be a more general talk about some of the topics we've been discussing about sort of the latest in space exploration and how it changes our views of extraterrestrial life. And then two nights later, on Monday the 21st of February, I will be in San Francisco. Uh, the Morrison Planetarium has a series called the Dean Lecture Series, but actually the Morrison is closed right now for renovation, and that is happening at the Jewish Community Center in San Francisco mm. at 7.30 p.m. on Monday the 21st. And you can get details about both of these events, again, if you go to www.lonelyplanets.net and just click on events, and you'll find all the details about how to get there and the times and so forth. And that would be great if people want to come out and, and talk about aliens, because it's what I love to do. All right. Well, I certainly uh, hope all the uh, alien lovers will be out there. <laughs> and maybe some aliens themselves. Uh, we have plenty of those in the Bay Area, I can tell you that. <laughs> I used to live there, I know. <laughs> all right. <laughs> well, uh, Dr. Grinspoon, I want to thank you very much again for uh, your time and telling us a lot about astrobiology and your book, Lonely Planets, The Natural Philosophy of Alien Life. Oh, thanks a lot for having me. It's always fun. And you were just listening to Dr. David Grinspoon from the Southwest Research Institute discussing astrobiology and his book, Lonely Planets. You're listening to Berkeley Grox only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, the Grokatron 5000 and the answer to last week's question of the week. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, we're back from the break, and Dr. David Grinspoon, author of Lonely Planets, The Natural Philosophy of Alien Life, has graciously decided to stick around and play our game, the Grokatron 5000. The Grokatron 5000 is, of course, our supercomputer, which was formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic T or ET. So for the following five items, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know, is the item of terrestrial or extraterrestrial origin? Dr. Grinspoon, are you ready to play our game, the Grokatron 5000? I certainly hope so. <laughs> All right, here we go. Uh, item number one, the Grokatron 5000, T or ET, the iPod. Oh, the iPod is clearly of extraterrestrial origin. Personally, I couldn't live without mine. And the reason why I say that is because I understand the iPod was designed and built in Silicon Valley. And the, the technology is so advanced, there's no way that it could have been created by mere Californian. It had to make use of reverse-engineered <laughs> technology from crashed spaceships, with, without which we'd still be listening to record players. <laughs> Thank God for Roswell, I guess. Yes, indeed. Uh, number two... Supersized fast food meals. Ah, supersized fast food meals are definitely of terrestrial origin. They're not extraterrestrial. And the reason I can confidently say that is, well, two reasons. If there are extraterrestrials visiting Earth, then they've come a long way from other star systems. And that means they are highly intelligent. So they probably would not eat supersized <laughs> fast food meals. And the, the other issue is, of course, that it takes a lot of energy to accelerate mass across interstellar distances. And if they're that obese, then... <laughs> they're never going to have enough energy to make the trip. So <laughs> those are terrestrial inventions. Yeah, you never see pictures of overweight aliens. So exactly, and there's a reason for that. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, number three, T or E.T., bungee jumping. Bungee jumping, I believe, is both T and E.T. Mm. It's such an obvious good idea that it's the kind of invention that through convergent evolution will spring up independently on planets all over the galaxy <laughs> where intelligent civilizations are evolving. So I believe bungee jumping is indigenous to Earth, but I predict we will find it once we get to explore the planets where other intelligent species live. Oh, wow. So I guess you might see the X Games on another planet at some point here. <laughs> exactly. Of course, with, with different gravity and different atmospheres, pressure, bungee jumping would present all kinds of new challenges, and after a while, people will be bored with just doing it on one planet. Well, good news for the travel agencies. Exactly. All right, number four, chihuahuas. (laughs) (laughs) Chihuahuas. I think that chihuahuas are definitely of extraterrestrial origin, (laughs) because as weird as the twists and turns of terrestrial evolution are, and even given the great variety of creatures that we see on Earth, it does not seem to me like the chihuahua is something that logically could have evolved from other terrestrial dogs. It must have come from elsewhere. Uh, well, uh, and number five, finally, the President of the United States, George Bush. The President of the United States, George Bush. Wow. I actually think neither. I think he comes <laughs> from a whole other dimension, you know, that uh, is not rightfully considered T or ET. I think that he's actually been sent here to try to wreak havoc on our planet by interdimensional beings, and I'm just hoping that soon they will take him back. Might be paving the way for the interdimensional invasion. Exactly. <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> All right. Well, Dr. Grinspoon, I want to thank you again for joining us on Berkeley Grox, playing our game, The Grokadron 5000, of course, discussing your book, Lonely Planets, The Natural Philosophy of Alien Life. Oh, thanks a lot for having me. All right. It was our pleasure. And now here's Herr Professor Einstein with the answer to last week's question of the week. Yeah, thank you very much, Sir Frank. And you know the difference between cooling and freezing and melting, yeah? Seems like they're the same thing, but the problem being, when you're cooling down, there's extra heat that causes the freezing point, you'll see, to be a little bit less than the melting point. So they're not always the same thing, freezing and melting, yeah? One way is up, other way is down. Better to be up than down, yeah? And now I'm Forrest here with this week's question of the week. Well, you know, down here in the south, we got these nice kitties. They're pretty friendly kitties. Except that not, they look a little bit eerie, you know? Their eyes just glow like gems in a chocolate bar. I wonder why that happened. If you know or think you know, email us at grox at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but your eyes might just open a little wider. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Therese.